This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Arsha Rajashima was a postdoctoral researcher at the National Institutes of Health when he lost a newborn child to a rare disease. As he entered the world of patient advocacy, he connected with rare disease patients in his homeland of India. Discussions he had there led him to co-found the Organization for Rare Diseases India and the Organization for Rare Diseases India USA, an effort to bridge the gulf between rare disease patients in the two countries. We spoke to Rajashima about the rare disease landscape in India, the opportunities for India to drive development of new therapies for rare diseases, and what his organizations are doing to foster cooperation between rare disease patients in India and the United States. Harash, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about India, rare diseases, and your efforts to establish a rare disease organization that can bridge the gulf between rare disease patients in the United States and India. Let's start with you and how you became involved in the world of rare disease. You were a postdoctoral researcher in clinical genomics data at the National Institutes of Health, but like many people on the advocacy side, you were drawn into this world in a very personal way. What happened? That's right, uh, Danny. Uh, life happened. Um, so I, I was uh, going about my day-to-day -day life as a genomics data scientist at the National Eye Institute. And when we had a, a personal experience with, with our second child that was born uh, with a rare congenital abnormality in 2012. Um, uh, the baby was diagnosed at birth with uh, trisomy 18 or Edward syndrome and uh, the neonatologist told us um, the baby is not compatible with life. Um, that changed uh, certainly our family and my life forever. Um, so I got uh, involved more, um, you know, from uh, being a researcher, a patient advocate in, in figuring out what had happened and what could have been done better as a, a healthcare system um, in, in terms of screening and early diagnosis, even in the first trimester, which we missed. Um, and that could have saved uh, a lot of time and uh, emotions and uh, resources for uh, everybody involved. Um, so then um, I got involved into the rare diseases space, uh, you know, with the Office of Rare Disease Research at NIH with uh, Dr. Stephen Graft and uh, the National Organization for Rare Diseases, uh, Global Genes, 
and, and a number of uh, initiatives and resources that were available uh, at the time in the United States. And uh, there were also a number of uh, initiatives in the European Union and the International Rare Diseases Research Consortium and uh, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, as well as uh, the more recent Global Commission to end uh, Diagnostic Odyssey for Rare Diseases. But, uh, you know, back in 2012, uh, as I learned through this, I looked back at India, where I came from, and uh, realized that there is uh, uh, not much happening there at all. We did not and still do not have a formal nationally uh, accepted definition for what a rare disease is in India. And um, um, being an Indian-American, I thought this is a clear unmet gap between uh, in India, which uh, I was clearly positioned uh, to see how United States had innovated and made progress over the years uh, since 1983 Orphan Drug Act. Uh, so um, I went back to India uh, for a conference, met with, uh, connected with a lot of people, but one meeting really changed everything, which is uh, with Mr. Prasanna Shirol, uh, who is my co-founder and executive director in India. Um, um, he is a inspiring father with a daughter uh, who is now 20 years old, uh, and she was the first patient to be diagnosed with uh, an ultra-rare disease called Pompeii, which is a lysosomal storage disease. And um, he had already founded Pompeii Foundation and uh, then uh, went on to found uh, the Lysosomal Storage Disorder Support Society in India and uh, had uh, been a very staunch patient advocate. And anything that had happened of significance in India on the ground uh, in the rare disease space was uh, really, uh, from a patient advocacy standpoint, was led by Prasanna. Uh, so we decided it's a, it's a meeting of minds, and uh, he was quite uh, informed about the global initiatives as well. So we thought uh, a national umbrella organization for rare diseases India was uh, founded. Well, I want to I want to get to that, but you know perhaps we can take a step back for many of our listeners. They may not have a very good grasp of the healthcare landscape in India and the the challenges patient even with the most common diseases face for getting access to what the industry has identified as a list of essential medicines. It's a complex landscape. I'm wondering if you can offer some orientation to how healthcare works in India. Absolutely. Um, so India is um, uh, a uh, almost uh, entirely a self-funded uh, healthcare system in the sense patients pay out of pocket. Um, although there has been a recent uh, uh, government initiative to uh, cover health insurance for uh, about 500 million uh, below poverty line uh, Indians through a national healthcare insurance program, but that still um, covers own, uh, you know a certain of, you know about five thousand uh, or ten thousand uh, dollars, five to ten thousand dollars per year, which uh, brings a lot of the uh, below poverty line people who have not never participated in the healthcare economy to now be engaged in the healthcare uh, uh, ecosystem. But uh, largely, India is 70% rural still and 30% urban. Um, and the urban population generally has access to the top-notch uh, health uh, hospital systems with uh, pretty much uh, cutting-edge 
uh, including next generation sequencing or uh, stem cell therapies and um, all the bleeding edge uh, therapies that are uh, available. Um, however, the 70% rural population is, is where uh, the challenges are more significant. And in, in the medical education curriculum uh, until about 10, 15 years ago um, did not include any significant genetics uh, in, in, in it, um, which is the medical uh, degree program. Um, and uh, there has been some progress with uh, the Medical Council of India introducing genetics into the medical education program. So there is some um, basic level of awareness the, uh, these days, uh, but still, uh, as a uh, as a whole, the healthcare ecosystem is more um, adept at uh, addressing common diseases. Uh, but one thing I must emphasize is the um, uh, ability and um, importance assigned to getting to a fast diagnosis. Um, although increasing, is, is uh, has been significantly lacking. Um, and, and uh, even uh, for simple infectious diseases like a sore throat, um, a strep test or, or a viral infection test uh, uh, like mono um, is, is not routinely performed and, and antibiotics are prescribed um, pretty much for anyone with, with a sore throat, uh, for example. Um, so getting that accurate diagnosis is so critical, especially in, in genetic diseases uh, and even rare forms of cancer where uh, therapies are being now targeted to a specific molecular biomarker. There's been growing attention in India to the issues of rare disease. There's been some start and stops by the government to address the needs of, of rare disease patients, but there's a growing number of stories I see in English language publications out of India about patients being unable to get needed drugs that have long been available in the United States. What's the situation for a, a rare disease patient in India? Is there access to genetic testing? Are patients generally diagnosed or are they just recognized as having something that we're just not in a position to treat today? Right. So for, for uh, since 1960s, uh, up until maybe 2010, um, largely uh, there was one primary center of excellence uh, in the north northern part of India, which is really the Gangaram, uh, Sir Gangaram Hospital, uh, where most of the com complex uh, genetic disease cases were referred to, and not everybody had the resources to even travel to New Delhi, and, and seek that genetic testing capabilities there um, or, or in CMC Vellore, um, which is a Christian medical college in, in, in the southern part of India, in Tamil Nadu. Um, and, and, you know, a handful of such centers to name, um, one in Hyderabad, one in Bangalore, like that, but uh, nothing significant. But I think since 2010, advent of next generation sequencing, uh, led by Illumina and, and the J. Flatley law of, um, um, you know, how uh, the cost of next-gen sequencing has been decreasing at the square of uh, Moore's law. Um, and that has uh, tapped into the Indian uh, intellectual capital in the information technology and the information sciences uh, side, uh, which has really spurred, um, taken the genetics, um, medical genetics, uh, which was largely restricted to a laboratory to outside of it now in the data space. And so since 2010, there has been a number of 
cap and clear accredited molecular diagnostic laboratories um, both by the uh, private sector as well as a number of academic uh, uh, hospitals uh, that have started offering next generation sequencing based uh, diagnostics of uh, these genetic diseases much like we have um, in the US uh, these days um, and, and it's all standardized by the Illumina platform uh, around uh, on, on that so uh, so I think that that has done a ton of good uh, so the urban Indian population and uh, slowly the um, semi-urban, uh, smaller towns, second-tier, third-tier towns are, are getting referred to these um, uh, metro cities, you know, about 15, 20 metro cities um, where, where these types of testing is now available. Earlier you mentioned Prasanna Sharol, a, a rare disease advocate of some notoriety in India. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you came to meet him and how that led to the formation of, of Ordi and Ordi USA. Sure, Danny. So in 2013, February, I went to Bangalore India Bio, which is an international conference that's uh, organized uh, by uh, BioCon uh, founder and chairman, um, uh, chairperson, Miss um, uh, Kiran Mazumdar Shah. BioCon is the largest uh, a contract manufacturing organization in India and Asia uh, for pharmaceuticals. And so um, I went to this conference in hopes of meeting um, all the key stakeholders uh, from my from the state and city of Bangalore where I grew up um, as, as a kid and um, uh, until I finished college and, and then I immigrated as an Indian American to U.S. But when I went to this conference and met with uh, Kiran and Dr. Vijay Chandru from Strand Life Sciences and, and a number of others who are a key part of this conference, um, they, they all supported the idea and suggested we put together a team and that they would support and uh, uh, help with uh, scaling up the organization. And um, I went to the Center for Human Genetics in, in the state of Karnataka in Bangalore, which is uh, nearby, and they suggested I connect with Prasanna as someone who has uh, been the founder of Pompeii and Lysosomal Storage Disorder Support Society uh, and been quite active in, in those uh, rare diseases, uh, advocacy, awareness, and policy making. So, uh, but, but I could not really catch hold of Prasanna in that trip. Um, and so I had to um, wait until April after I came back in February. Um, and in April, Prasanna uh, gave me a call back uh, all of a sudden. Um, and uh, we had a four-hour conversation. Um, and it was meeting of the minds. And he had been thinking about a NORD or Global Genes type organization for India, kind of like the National Umbrella Organization going beyond the uh, lysosomal storage diseases. And so it, you know, we came together and said we need uh, a lot of people. And we reached out to all the key opinion leaders and formed um, a team of founding members and board board of directors um, and, and advisory board uh, with a number of uh, scientists and philanthropists across India. And that, that's how the organization came about. Perhaps you can describe the relationship between Ordi and Ordi USA and, and how the two organizations work together. Sure. Um, so that um, 
so ordi usa uh, was set up uh, uh, two or three years later after ordi in india was set up and um, as we were you know borrowing from the best practices for patient advocacy from organizations in the us and europe where largely where the innovation has happened over the last 35 years of existence of orphan drug act um we uh, decided that it, uh, we do need to tap into the um, uh, collaborations with the us uh, because uh, you know there is about 288000 clinical trials um, currently registered with the um, clinicaltrials.gov database and only about 600 or so clinical trials are happening in the in india and um, us and europe have almost equal number of trials which are in the 7000 plus range and as you know the population of india is larger than us and european population combined uh, of course uh, the resources and the clinical research has been largely driven for innovative new therapies uh, from these uh, regions the western world um, and so we we th- we believe that it's very critical for us to bridge the uh gaps and connect the resources between the western world and india uh, where there is over 70 million people living with a rare disease uh, and uh, mo- many of them are not even um, known to the healthcare system because they remain undiagnosed and so uh, we need to connect them uh, as 95% of these rare diseases still do not have uh, therapy about close to 1500 uh, rare disease clinical trials are currently ongoing and and m- millions of people in india could potentially benefit if they are made aware of these trials and uh, potentially enable them to uh, connect with and opt into uh, these trials where possible uh, where they can either travel to a trial site in the europe or us or um, we can even facilitate setting up of trial sites in india um, and so that's where with that vision we thought we should uh, have a, a presence in in the united states uh, but at the same time this is not all about india you know medical science uh, will advance when we have all inclusive clinical study with the representation from the general population which is more representative of the people who are likely to benefit when the therapy is approved by the FDA and so we need to engage all the diverse population in here in the US and also the stakeholders of rare diseases like the government policy makers uh, the biopharma industry as well as the patient advocacy groups um and what one other thing that happened during those uh, that initial period is when when i started going to these conferences uh, on rare diseases um, the patient advocacy groups like lysosomal storage diseases or muscular dystrophy and others the one big question i would get asked is um, india is a country with such a huge population and we have a patient registry here in the us we have a few hundred patients in in our database um with india is likely to have millions of them uh, how can you help uh, connect us with them so we can build a natural history database of uh, millions of patients and not just a few hundred or a few thousand 
um, and and so that's where I, I saw the clear need the, to have um, uh, engagement uh, both at the patient level and at uh, the medical research level as well as the industry and government policy making level uh, between the two countries. Uh, that, that's where we set up ORDI and it's now a 501c3 public charity status in the U.S. And we have made study progress uh, and this year we are very pleased to have received uh, philanthropic uh, donations and grants from uh, publicly traded pharmaceutical companies here in the U.S. Uh, to support this uh, uh, initiative to bridge the gaps between uh, U.S. and India. So as you think about your organization's agenda, short term, what are the priorities and where do you see this going long term? Um, I, I think we are barely starting uh, scratching the surface and, and it's still very early stage uh, initiatives, although we have put in huge uh, uh, effort and enlisted support from a number of uh, people. Um, I, I think where we like to see is um, have make this a uh, ongoing uh, annual um, set of programs where we bring the stakeholders of um, um, rare diseases between U.S. India but also broader community under one roof at, at conferences, uh, discussions and, and events. Um, uh, so I, I, I do see a very uh, uh, long-term uh, uh, focus and uh, initiative to sustain. Um, so I, I, you know, currently our challenge is sustainability. Over the last uh, uh, six years or so, um, you know, in the uh, we started off all with volunteering, and um, uh, a couple years ago, Prasanna uh, took up uh, full time with the ORDI as an executive director, and has been spearheading uh, the day-to-day -day operations and built a team of about eight to ten people now, including uh, genetic counselors, registered nurses. Uh, uh, to help uh, operationalize a number of uh, initiatives like the Rare Disease Care Coordination Center and Race for Seven and a number of other programs. In the U.S., it is still 100% volunteer-driven at this point, which is not very sustainable. So we are seeking um, both philanthropic donations and, and corporate sustainability and responsibility uh, uh, funds that can help sustain this very important uh, uh, initiative. You talked about India's prowess in information technology. You talked about the, the large patient population. Where do you think India could have the biggest impact on rare diseases going forward? Um, that's an interesting point, uh, Danny. I, I, you know, as uh, most geneticists know, they, they call India uh, uh, heaven for uh, genetic research, uh, mainly because of the uh, pure paternal lineages and the practice of arranged marriages uh, and um, uh, within within their own community or, or uh, caste, uh, if you will, uh, which is not uh, as uh, you know, it's not as 100%, uh, but over. Uh, in this generation, but uh, over the past several generations that uh, paternal lineages have been preserved. Uh, and so the ethnic uh, 
north indian uh, genome and the ethnic uh, south indian um, ancestrally south indian genome uh, have been preserved uh, in addition to these uh, paternal lineages what we call gotra uh, in india and so uh, we ordi was very uh, honored to facilitate a uh, population scale paternal lineage uh, genetic research Uh, between uh, Harvard uh, postdoctoral researcher and and uh, several research groups in India, which uh, resulted in a Nature publication. Um, so, uh, so I think that it's uh, that's an area where I think Indian population and and especially not just the size and volume, which is what most people would think, um, but also. Uh, those who are familiar with the uh, arranged marriages and and the preserving of these paternal lineages realize that there is lot more um, to it than that uh, it, it's almost like pure bred uh, lines of uh, which uh, are usually available only in animal models but uh, in india in certain cases um, just much like the ashkenazi jewish population um, where they marry in uh, among themselves um, th- there is number of communities in india uh, th- that have been practicing that for uh, many generations as well as um, uh, you know the, with the big data and next generation sequencing genetics is no longer uh, restricted to the lab and hence uh, there is a lot of uh, artificial intelligence machine learning digital health wearables Uh, and the advent of smartphones everybody has smartphones these days and so we are looking at how we can leverage these uh, technologies to engage uh, the large population in india which is also the english language is, is continues to be the primary uh, language uh, for education although you know there are 29 states uh, and union territories in india um and most of them have their own local regional state level language um but but where um, and which are also mandatory as a second or third language but uh, the primary language to transact most of the business whether it's healthcare or banking or any sector is still english and so that's uh, uh, you know easy to integrate uh, with with the western um, medical science uh, literature which is all largely english based as well and what's the opportunity for rare disease advocates and the united states and india to work together what what do they have to gain by taking to very different rare disease communities and and reaching out to each other right so you know in, in general the patient advocacy groups have uh, been very uh, critical uh, in helping uh other patients um and and patients who have gone through a, a certain experience uh, are uh, altruistically helping other patients so they they can help others not suffer the same way that they went through and so um there is that altruist altruism and then there is also this uh, aspect of volume and and the voice of the patient so imagine a patient group focus on a particular um, rare disease like syngap1 as an example you know um, uh, one of my uh, uh, peer or colleague uh, monica she's focused on a single rare um, uh, autism spectrum disorder with a single gene mutation called syngap1 the number of patients is is quite small you know few hundred at best um, and and so it's 
even more harder to identify all the patients who may be still living with that same genetic mutation. How do you identify unless they are all sequenced or genotyped uh, using a genetic testing? Um, so uh, it takes a long time. So when you spread the net um, uh, narrowly within within a state in U.S. or uh, even all of U.S., you still are unable to get to all the uh, existing patients and you, you know you, you end up with a few hundred and so you have a, um, a weak voice um, as a patient group um, and uh, economics doesn't scale up uh, when you have to convince a biopharmaceutical company to invest in research and development of a therapy for your uh, disease that your son might be suffering from it's very difficult to make that economic justification whereas if you have connectivity uh, across different countries and you have a single database with uh, now with uh, uh, hundreds of thousands instead of a few hundred um, patients in your database, the biopharma company will say, hey, you know, it, it does make economic sense. So we can, you know, if, if a therapy does come out and, and the patients are well organized, they have a registry, they have all the data and we, uh, which they really need in their R&D pipeline. Um, then it's a huge uh, de-risking uh, factor for um, investments as well as, um, uh, you know, when they do understand the patient perspectives uh, well enough at the population scale, they are more likely to succeed in, in that therapy's uh, clinical trial. Uh, they have a uh, ready venue to recruit patients from for their clinical trial and uh, then uh, get the therapy to, through regulatory approvals much faster. And I know you have some events coming up. Um, you want to just quickly tell people what's coming up? Absolutely. So uh, one of the uh, biggest events that we uh, organize uh, in, in U.S. and India is Race for Seven, uh, which started about four years ago. It's a seven-kilometer walk or run to raise awareness about 7,000-plus rare diseases. Uh, it, it's more like 8,000, but, you know, it's definitely more than 7,000. Uh, and it, uh, the seven years of average time it takes to diagnose a rare disease and, and the seven years of market exclusivity for an orphan drug that uh, the Food and Drug Administration provides as a result of the Orphan Drug Act. Um, and, you know, there's over 70 million people living with rare diseases in India. So there is, uh, we are raising awareness uh, at the public level around the number seven with this Race for Seven event, uh, which is uh, uh, conducted uh, in four cities in the U.S. this year and uh, about 11 cities in India. Uh, we expect uh, thousands of people participating in, in this event across these cities. Um, and it's on the last Sunday of February 24th, uh, which is the rare disease uh, uh, week. And the last day uh, is the International Rare Disease Day. Um, so the week starting February 24th uh, happens to be the Rare Disease Legislative Advocates Week on the Capitol Hill as well. Uh, so we are expecting um, Dr. Marshall Samar has kindly agreed to be our flag bearer to flag off the race for seven at Washington Monument. And we, we will also be doing at Fremont, California, Dallas, and Greenville, South Carolina, close to Clemson University. So we are inviting uh, the public, uh, all are welcome. This is an open event, and uh, they can register at race for 7 
usa.com um, or, or they can find that information on our website as well, the ordiusa.org. The second event is uh, we are really thrilled that the seventh annual Undiagnosed Diseases Network International Conference is uh, happening in New Delhi, and we are thrilled to be one of the co-organizing organizations with uh, Sir Gangaram Hospital, with the UDN uh, of NIH, uh, led by Dr. Bill Gao, as well as uh, the government of India's uh, IGIB, the Institute for Genomics and Integrative Biology, and the Wilhelm Foundation um, have all come together to host the 7th uh, UDNI conference. This will be in April uh, 13, 14, 15, three days. And we are also planning a patient advocacy group meeting uh, on the 16th uh, with uh, a number of patient advocacy groups uh, from around the world. So uh, it will be great for our um, uh, listeners to um, uh, look into um, this RNUD conference the website is rnud.in, uh, in as in India, and, and race for seven. Arsha Rajasima, co-founder and co-executive chair of Ordi and Ordi USA. Arsha, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.